Chapter 8 of Anything You Can Do by Randall Garrett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Anything You Can Do. Chapter 8 The girl moved with the peculiar gliding walk so characteristic of a person walking under low gravity conditions, and the ease and grace with which she did it showed that she was no stranger to low G. To the three men from Earth who followed her a few paces behind, the G-pulse seemed so low as to be almost non-existent, although it was actually shade over one-quarter of that of Earth, the highest gravitational pull of any planetoid in the belt. Their faint feeling of nausea was due simply to their lack of experience with really low gravity. The largest planetoid in the belt had a surface gravity that was only one-eighth the pull they were now experiencing and only one-thirty-second of the earth gravity they were used to. The planetoid they were on, or rather in, was known throughout the belt simply as Threadneedle Street, and was nowhere near as large as Ceres. What accounted for the relatively high gravity pull of this tiny body was its spin. Moving in its orbit, out beyond the orbit of Mars, it turned fairly rapidly on its axis, rapidly enough to overcome the feeble gravitational field of its mass. It was a solid, roughly spherical mass of nickel-iron, nearly two-thirds of a mile in diameter, and, like the other inhabited planetoids of the belt, honeycombed with corridors and rooms cut out of the living metal itself. But the corridors and rooms were oriented differently from those of other planetoids. Threadneedle Street made one complete rotation about its axis in something less than a minute and a half, and the resulting centrifugal force reversed the normal up and down so that the center of the planetoid was overhead to anyone walking inside it. It was that fact which added to the queasiness of the three men from Earth who were following the girl down the corridor. They knew that only a few floors beneath them yawned the mighty nothingness of infinite space. The girl, totally unconcerned with thoughts of that vast emptiness, stopped before a door that led off the corridor and opened it. Mr. Martin, she said, these are the gentlemen who have an appointment with you, Mr. Gerol, Mr. Vandenbosch, Mr. Nguma. She called off each name as the man bearing it walked awkwardly through the door. Gentlemen, she finished, this is Mr. Stanley Martin. Then she left, discreetly closing the door. The young man behind the desk in the metal-walled office stood up smiling as the three men entered, offered his hand to each, and shook hands warmly. Sit down, gentlemen, he said, gesturing toward three solidly built chairs that had been anchored magnetically to the nickel-iron floor of the room. Well, he said genially, when the three had seated themselves, how was the trip out? He watched them closely, without appearing to do so, as they made their polite responses to his question. He was acquainted with them only through correspondence. Now was his first chance to evaluate them in person. Barnabas Nguma, a very tall man, whose dark brown skin and eyes made a sharp contrast with the white of the mass of tiny, crisp curls on his head, smiled when he spoke, but there were lines of worry etched around his eyes. "'Pleasant enough, Mr. Martin. I'm afraid that steady 1G acceleration has left me unprepared for this low gravity.' "'Well,' said Stefan Vandenbosch, it really wasn't so bad once you get used to it. As long as it's steady, I don't mind it. 
He was a rather chubby man of average height, with blond hair that was beginning to gray at the temples and pale blue eyes that gave his face an expression of almost childlike innocence. Arthur Gerald, the third man, was almost as light-complexioned as Vandenbush. His thinning hair was light brown and his eyes were a deep gray-blue, and the lines in his hard, blocky face gave him a look of grim determination. I agree, Stefan. It isn't the low gravity per se. It's the doggone surges. We went from one G to zero when the ship came in for a landing at the pole of Threadneedle Street. Then as we came back down here, the gravity kept going up, and that's—what do you call it? Coriolis force? Yeah, that's it. It made my head feel as though the whole room was spinning." Then realizing what he'd said, he laughed sharply. The man behind the desk laughed with him. Yes, it is a bit disconcerting at first, but the spin gives enough G-pull to make a man feel comfortable once he's used to it. That's one of the reasons why Threadneedle Street was picked. As the financial center of the belt, we have a great many visitors from Earth, and one-quarter G is a lot easier to get used to than a fiftieth." Then he looked quickly at the others and said, "'Now, gentlemen, how can Lloyds of London help you?' He had phrased it that way on purpose, deliberately making it awkward for them to bring up the subject they had on their minds. It was Nguma who broke the short silence. Quite simply, Mr. Martin, we have come to put our case before you in person. It is not Lloyd's we want, it is you." "'You refer to our correspondence on the Nipe case, Mr. Nguma?' "'Exactly. We feel—' The man behind the desk interrupted him. "'Mr. Nguma, do you have any further information?' He looked as though such news would be welcome, but that it would not change his mind in the least. That's just it, Mr. Martin," said Nguma. We don't know whether our little bits and dribbles of information are worth anything. The man behind the desk leaned back in his chair again. I see, he said softly. Well, just what is it you want of me, Mr. Nguma? Nguma looked surprised. Why, just what I've written, sir. You are acknowledged as the greatest detective in the solar system, bar none. We need you, Mr. Martin. Earth needs you. That inhuman monster has been killing and robbing for ten years. Men, women, and children have been slaughtered and eaten as though they were cattle. You've got to help us find that god-awful thing." Before there could be any answer, Arthur Gerald leaned forward earnestly and said, "'Mr. Martin, we don't just represent businessmen who have been robbed. We also represent hundreds and hundreds of people who have had friends and relatives murdered by that horror. Little people, Mr. Martin. Ordinary people who are helpless against the terror of a superhuman evil. This isn't just a matter of money and goods lost. It's a matter of lives lost. Human lives, Mr. Martin." "'They're not the only ones who are concerned, either,' Vandenbush broke in. "'If that hellish thing isn't destroyed, more will die. Who knows how long a beast like that may live? What is its lifespan? Nobody knows." He waved a hand in the air. "'For all we know, it could go on for another century, maybe more, killing, killing, killing.' The detective looked at them for a moment in silence. 
these three men represented more than just a group of businessmen who had grown uneasy about the government's ability to catch the knife. They represented more than a few hundred or even a few thousand people who had been directly affected by the monster's depredations. They represented the growing feeling of unrest that was making itself known all over Earth. It was even making itself felt out here in the belt, although the Nipe had not, in the past decade, shown any desire to leave Earth. Why hadn't the beast been found? Why couldn't it be killed? Why were its raids always so fantastically successful? For every tooth-mark that inhuman thing had left on a human bone, it had left a thousand unhuman minds, marks of a fear that was more than a fear. It was a deep-seated terror of the unknown. The number of people killed in ordinary accidents in a single week was greater than the total number killed by the Nipe in the last decade, but nowhere were men banding together to put a stop to that sort of death. Accidental death was a known factor, almost a friend. The Nipe was stark horror. The detective said, "'Gentlemen, I'm sorry, but what I said in my last letter still goes. I can't take the job.' I will not go to earth." Every one of the three men could sense the determination in his voice, the utter finality of his words. There was no mistaking the iron-hard will of the man. They knew that nothing could shake him, nothing at least that they could do. But they couldn't admit defeat. No matter how futile they knew it to be, they still had to try. Nguma took a billfold from his jacket-pocket opened it and took out an engraved sheet of paper with an embossed seal in one corner. He put it on the desk in front of the detective. "'Would you look at that, Mr. Martin?' he asked. The detective picked it up and looked at it. The expression on his face did not change. Two hundred and fifty thousand, he said in a voice that showed only polite interest. "'A cool quarter of a million. That's a lot of money, Mr. Nguma.' It is," said Nguma. As you can see, that sum has just been deposited here, in the belt branch of the Bank of England. It will be transferred to your account immediately, as soon as you agree to come to earth and find and kill the Nipe." The detective looked up from his inspection of the certificate. He had known that the three men had made a visit to the bank's offices, and he had been fairly sure of their purpose when he had received the information. He had not known the sum would be quite so large. "'A quarter of a million just to take the job?' he asked. "'And what if I don't catch him?' "'We have faith in you, Mr. Martin,' Nguma said. "'We know your reputation. We know what you've done in the past. The government police haven't been able to do anything. They're completely baffled, and have been for ten years. They will continue to be so.' This alien's mind is too devilishly sharp for the kind of men in government service. We know that when you take this job, the finest brain in the solar system will be searching for that horror. If you can't find him—he spread his hands in a gesture that was partly a dismissal of all hope, and partly an appeal to the man whose services he wanted so desperately. The detective put the certificate down on the desktop and pushed it toward Nguma. That's very flattering, sir, really. And I wish there were some more diplomatic way of saying no, but that's all I can say. 
there will be a like sum deposited to your account as soon as you either kill or capture the Nipe, or, discovering his hideout, enable the government officials to kill or capture him," said Nguma. "'That's half a million in all,' Gerald put in. "'We've worked hard to raise that money, Mr. Martin. It should be enough.' The detective kept his temper under icy control, allowing just enough of his anger to show to make his point. "'Mr. Gerald, it is not a question of money. Your offer is more than generous.' "'It's our final offer,' Gerald said flatly. "'I hope it is, Mr. Gerald,' the detective said coldly. "'I sincerely hope it is. For the past six months you and your organization have been trying to get me to take this job. I appreciate the sincerity of your efforts, believe me. And, as I said, I am honored and flattered that you should think so highly of me. On the other hand, your method of going about it is hardly flattering. I turned down your first offer of twenty thousand six months ago. Since then you have been going up and up and up until you have finally reached twenty-five times the original amount. You seem to think I have been holding out for more money. I have attempted to disabuse you of that notion, but you would not read what I put down in my communications, evidently. If I had wanted more money than you offered at first, I would have said so. I would have quoted you a price. I did not. I gave you an unqualified refusal. I give it to you still. No. Flatly, absolutely, and finally, no." Nguma was the only one of the three who could find his tongue immediately. "'I should think,' he said somewhat acidly, "'that you would consider it your duty to—' The detective cut him off. The detective cut him off. My duty, Mr. Nguma, is, at this moment, to my employers. I am a paid investigator for Lloyd's of London, Belt Branch. I draw a salary that is more than adequate for my needs and almost adequate for my taste in the little luxuries of life. I am, for the time being at least, satisfied with my work. So are my employers. Until one or the other of us becomes dissatisfied, the situation will remain as it is. I will not accept any outside work of any kind, except at the instructions of, or with the permission of, my employers. I have neither. I want neither at this time. That is all, gentlemen. Good day." "'But the money,' Nguma said. "'The money should be withdrawn from the bank and returned to earth. I suggest you return it to the people who have donated it to your organization. If that is impossible, I suggest you donate it to the government officials who are working so hard to do the job you want done. I assure you, they are much more capable than I of dealing with the Nipe. Good day, Mr. Nguma, Mr. Vandenbosch, Mr. Gerald." They looked hurt, bewildered, and angry. Only Mr. Barnabas Nguma looked as if he might have some slight understanding of what had happened. He was the only one who spoke. Good day, Mr. Martin. I am sorry we have disturbed you. Thank you for your valuable time," he said with dignity, and then the three men walked out the door, closing it behind them. The detective sat behind his desk, looking at the door, almost as if he could see the men beyond it as they moved down the corridor. Several minutes later, when his secretary opened the door again, he was still staring thoughtfully at it. She thought he was staring at her. 
something the matter, Mr. Martin?' she said. "'What? Oh, no, no. Nothing, Helen, nothing. Just wool-gathering. Did you see our visitors out all right?' She glided in and closed the door behind her. "'Well, none of them fell and broke a leg, if that's what you mean. But that Mr. Gerald looked as though he might break a blood-vessel. I take it you turned them down again?' "'Yes, for the last time, I think.' It's a shame they had to travel out here, all that distance, to be turned down. They looked on me as their great white hope. They couldn't really believe I would turn them down. Couldn't let themselves believe it, I guess. They're scared, Helen, bright green scared. I know. But if it weren't for the fact that I have certain pretensions to being a lady, I would have booted that Gerald into orbit without a spacesuit. Oh? He implied, Helen said angrily, that you were a coward, that you were afraid to face the Nipe. The detective chuckled. I hope you didn't say anything. I wanted to, she admitted. I wanted to tell him that guns are easy to buy, that all he had to do was buy one and go after the Nipe himself. I would like to have seen his face if I'd asked him how scared he was of the beast. But I didn't say a word. They weren't talking to me anyway, they were talking to each other. I'd almost be willing to bet that Nguma disagreed with Gerald. Nguma didn't think I was a physical coward. He thought I was a moral coward. How'd you know? Intuition, just from the way he talked and acted. He felt the failure more than the others, because he felt there was no hope left at all. He was quite certain that I, myself, did not believe the Nipe could be caught, by me or anyone else. He thinks that I turned down the job because I know I'd fail, and I don't want to have a failure on my record. Not that big a failure." "'That's ridiculous, of course,' the girl said angrily. The detective noticed a faint note in her voice. "'She thinks the same as Nguma,' he thought, but she doesn't want to admit it to herself. He massaged his closed eyes with the tips of his fingers. Maybe she's right, he thought. Maybe they're both right. Aloud, he said, Well, we've had our little diversion. Let's get back to work. Yes, sir. You want the Benheim file again? Yes. I've got to figure that tricky line down to a T, or we may never see that boy again. We haven't much time, either. Two weeks at most. She went over to the file-cabinet and took out several heavy folders. "'Imagine,' she said, almost to herself, "'imagine them trying to get you away from here when you have a kidnap case to solve. They must be out of their minds.' There was no kidnap case six months ago, the detective thought. She knows that's not the reason. She's only trying to convince herself. Why did I turn them down?' His mind veered away from the dangerous subject, and for a moment his mental processes refused to focus on anything at all. The girl put the files down on his desk. "'Thanks, Helen. Now, let's see. I'll work on this,' he thought. I won't even think about the other at all. End of chapter 8